This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, the future and the best things about 2020. When I think about the global pandemic and COVID, it's the great accelerator, the good things and the bad things. So I think that is where you can start seeing where change is going to happen. That as we get to the other side of this, there's a lot of pent up energy. There's a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of pent up capital that we actually are on the brink of of an economic boom. I think for me, the, the thing that's most shaking and life changing is we begin to see the line between biology and technology coming down. All of those things put together means that we start to have this thing called the coming age of sentient tools. The future is built by people. We design the future, right? That makes me an optimist because I tell people, let's get together and build a future that's awesome. Let's not get together and build a future that's terrible. You have the power to shape your future and never give that up. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So in this episode, we are going to look to the future. Our first guest is a renowned futurist who has been shockingly accurate with how they think that the future is going to look. We'll be talking about everything from post-COVID to sentient robots to how you can shape the future. This is futurist Brian David Johnson. So I think the big question is, how has COVID changed things? Has it fundamentally altered things or is this a blip? When I think about COVID, especially when you think about it like a futurist, what COVID and this global pandemic was, is it was a destabilizing event. And destabilizing events happen all the time. So you could have a hurricane, that's a destabilizing event. You could have a power outage, that's a destabilizing event. But then you have to look at the reach, the magnitude, and the origin of it, right? So this is what made the pandemic really tough, is it was global and it was biological, right? And so that destabilizing event eventually will stabilize. We will go back to some level of stabilization and of new normal. Of course, it won't be what the world was like in 2019, but we, what we will go back. There will be a, a moment when we will have to explain in about 10 to 15 years to a child what actually happened. Uh, so we will get to that point at some point. But I think when I think about the, the, the global pandemic and COVID, it's the great accelerator. 
it just accelerated everything, the good things and the bad things. So I think that is where you can start seeing where change is going to happen. Will, will, do you think it will continue that pace or will it kind of slow down a little bit? Like has this, is the car been pushed forward and it's accelerating and will continue to accelerate at that speed? Or is it more like a catapult where there's this initial big push and then eventually it kind of slows down and gets back to where it was? I think for different issues, they'll have sort of different effects. I mean, with the, with COVID being about the the virus, once we've dealt with the virus and we now have a, a line of sight on dealing with the virus, that will slow some things down, right? That will just allow things to get back to normal, will allow things to, to us to set up that new normal. But I do think in, in other areas, like in how we work, I think in a lot of social justice areas, there's a lot of, there's no going back. Um, and I think that, you know, and when I talk to people, because again, I'm, I'm a futurist, right? I just model the future. I'm, I'm not an expert in those areas. But when I'm doing my work and working with those people, a lot of them say that, you know, this is quite different. You know, this is a, you know, this is a very uh, ground shaking event that you don't go back from. There's no kind of coming back. The only way is forward. I, I would imagine that when you study the future, you kind of have to look to the past. Is there any events that people would look at and say, you know what? Yes, this is new to us, but it is kind of similar to something that has happened in the past and how society at that time handled it. Well, it's 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 funny that you asked that because I do a lot of work with historians. People think that like futurists and historians like wouldn't get along. We're like cats and dogs and we're always fighting. It's not true at all. I actually I've written I've written books with uh, historians. But what I like about historians is that it's not that history repeats itself. It doesn't. But history is the language we use to talk about the future, right? Because the future is unwritten, right? The future is being made by people. And the frame of reference that we use is the past, is what happened in the past. So that's actually a great kind of framing and kind of thinking about this. I think one perfect example is we've had pandemics before. Um, and, you know, there's a, a lot of work, even there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Tim Lant, who's at, he's, he's a mathematical epidemiologist. And he does work in pandemics. And he had written about a pandemic like COVID about six years ago. And so for him, he had been watching. People said, you know, we had never seen this before. It's like, well, we had actually. We had actually talked about it. We just, many, many people weren't paying attention. So I do think there's, there's things like that. But I go back to, you know, thinking about if I had come to you pre-9-11 and said that you were going to have to take your shoes and belt off before getting on a plane, you'd have told me I was crazy. Now, the majority of people do it and we don't even think about it, right? We kind of complain about it a little bit, but that's about it. And so I think you can look at some of these, some of these very large events that had kind of changes on our society and just literally how we live our daily lives and go about things and we kind of normalize to them. So I think there's the big pandemics, which we've seen like that before, but then there's these other kind of larger destabilizations like 9-11, like things like that, that where you can begin to see, well, okay, because we're pretty resilient as human beings. We can kind of come back from a lot. So in the US, wearing the mask, wearing a mask, especially during cold and flu season, was just something nobody did, right? But if you go over to Asia, where I did a lot of work for most of my career, wearing a mask was quite normal. Like that was a, you wore that, especially if you, if you had the flu or you were just sick, you'd wear a mask. And when somebody saw that you were wearing a mask, they weren't like, oh, 
gosh, you're scary because you're wearing a mask. It was like, no, thank you. You're wearing a mask, obviously, because you're, you're not well. Um, and so I think different cultures normalize to those changes. And I think that as we start to come back, that you will start seeing things like that, that when you come back, we'll start of question, how do we want it to come back? That's what the thing I'm really interested in. And especially in my private practice and when I work with people, we talk about now, well, how do you want to come back? You know, as we start to get out of lockdown, get out. What does that life look like? If we're, if you don't have to go back to what it was before, what, what does that new life look like? When you look at the future, what do you, what do you see a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? So I think if we look a year from now, going back to what we talked about, right? So this was a global destabilizing event that was, came from a biological agent, came from a virus. Over this next year, we need to get to the other side of the virus, right? Nothing gets fixed until the virus gets fixed, period. And that's going to be messy. Um, but we've, you know, we've been doing a pretty good job, meaning, you know, getting a vaccine in a short period of time, starting to figure stuff out, getting that. So as we go through that, the next year was going to be pretty bumpy. But as we kind of start to get to the other side of the virus, then it starts to look really interesting because, and this is one of the things that I've really heard just recently, and that's one of the things that I've, I've been fascinated with just in the past month, even before the, the talk of the vaccines and their efficacy, was a lot of the work that I'm doing is post-COVID work. So my work as a futurist, I look 10 years out, right? I look, and for a long time, I was doing a lot of rapid work on the pandemic, but now a lot of the businesses that I do work with, they're all looking post-COVID. So that, that's an interesting thing when the business world really starts to plan and think about post-COVID. And in doing that research, I'm not an economist, but a, a, several economists that I do work with are starting to talk about the coming boom. That as we get to the other side of this, there's a lot of pent up energy. There's a lot of pent up demand. There's a lot of pent up capital. Um, that one of the things that we could be looking at was a real upside. As we get to the other side of this and as the economy begins to open up, it's not just opening up that we actually are on the brink of, a, of an economic boom, that there's this actually incredible time of growth as we come out to the other side of it. And then I think as we look 10 years out, you know, that's where I put on, you know, my definite futurist hat, my technological futurist hat. That's so much of what I think about is technology. I, that's my, you know, what they say is, you know, a hammer sees everything as a nail, right? I am a, I am a hammer and technology is my nail. That's for me, that is a deep, deep driver along with sort of social science of sort of where things are going. I kind of understand more about what you mean in, sen in the sense of like the good things will be good, the bad things will be bad. If you kind of got through all of this pandemic largely unscathed, it's going to be great. But if you got really hit, you're going to miss out on the boom too. Is that going to, is there any concern in like that could increase kind of societal fractures, so to speak, between the haves and the have nots? I think that's where we need to ask ourselves, how do we want to come back? And I think not only, not only here in the United States, but I think all over the world, people are starting to have that conversation specifically, Nick, for what you're saying. Like, so how do we come back? Right. This uh, pandemic has exposed a lot of fractures and fissures and scars and we need to deal with those, right? We need to talk about, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, and you can even see when people are talking about economic stimulus, when people are talking about who gets the vaccine and when, and what do those tiers look like? You know, there's some really robust conversations around that. Um, and so I think we're starting to see people now because they do see a light at the end of the tunnel and it's, it's a bit ways off, but I think that's the very, very important conversation. And probably the conversation of 2021 is how do we come back and how does everybody participate in that coming back when you look at, at towards the future 
what do you think is going to start to phase out? Like thing that we did, technology that we used, however you want to answer this, what do you think is going to start to get phased out? I think one of the things that was really interesting for me is how work has changed. You know, it's it's fascinating how you've seen large swaths of the population be able to go to stay in their homes and do work and not have to go to the office. Now, that doesn't mean that people won't go back to offices anymore. I'm not saying that anymore. I do a lot of work with architects. I do a lot of work with commercial real estate firms. That's not it. But again, how we go back, what it means to go back to the office and where you work and how you work. And this isn't a theoretical discussion because a lot of the people who I do work with have fundamentally changed how they do business so that they can never go back. A great example is I do a lot of work in manufacturing, you know, big kind of Midwest manufacturing firms, right? Big pieces of metal, put big holes in those pieces of metal, sell them for lots of money and small pieces of metal, they put really tiny holes in them and sell them for even more money, right? It's great, right? So it's, it's, you know, American manufacturing and based in the Midwest. And for many years, they would only hire within three to four hours of their plants. And which would make sense because you got to get to the plant because it's manufacturing, you manufacture stuff. Well, then the lockdown happened and they had to only let certain amount of people into the factory floor. And so there were a lot of people who couldn't come in, right, because of different regulations. And then they started realizing that they didn't have to come in all the time. And then they realized, wait a minute, if we don't hire three to four hours from our plant, that means our hiring pool just went coast to coast. And it became really fascinating. And they were very excited because now where they couldn't find the appropriate talent, now they've been able to find it. And you know, now that they've hired somebody who lives down in the Florida panhandle, they're not moving. They're not moving up to the Midwest. Like that is a sort of a structural change inside of hiring. Another business, uh, more of an entertainment business, I do work on the West Coast, you know, they're based in San Francisco and they were talking about, again, their hiring practices and their HR and they were everybody come into work, everybody be here. San Francisco was really expensive. But for the pandemic, it became very obvious that they, anybody could go anywhere. And so they did. And a lot of people said, I'm not coming back. Like, I like living in Bend, Oregon. I'm not coming back because the quality of life's better and I can't afford it. And by the way, if you don't want to hire me, our competitor is going to hire me because they're not going to, they don't want me to come back and we, they know we don't need to. So it's fascinating to me when you say like what, you know, what doesn't change, just how we do work, I think has been, has been really, really changed. Um, and also all the implications of understanding, you know, the, for essential workers and things like that, I think as well, we've got a heightened sensitivity around that as we start to come back. You mentioned, this is my personal rant. But if I would, you mentioned commercial real estate, like if I was in commercial real estate, I feel like I would be shitting my pants right now. Like what are these, are, are, are we still going to go downtown and there's going to be businesses all over the place or are they just going to drop all of this? Well, because I, they don't need to have a business maybe. I think it changes. So let's go back to the, for commercial real estate, let's go back to the, the, the workplace first and then talk about downtown. So for the workplace, do like I said, a lot of work with architects and they're reimagining what the office looks like and saying, well, what if the footprint of the office is significantly smaller, right? We're seeing some Silicon Valley companies give up their headquarters and things like that. So you're seeing them say, it's not that you don't have to ever come into work. It's you come into work when you need to or when you want to. Because by the way, there's a lot of people who want to come to work. Um, I, I was talking with, I, I, I um, 
consult and talk with a group of about 70 CEOs about four times a year. And I've been working with them for many years. And so we were talking about what they are seeing. And it was really fascinating. We're having this sort of larger conversation. And they were beginning to see that the the swath of their employees that really wanted to come back were the millennials and the Gen Zs. And Gen Z, the ones who they were just hiring, and they were really surprised by that because they were like, well, this generation has so comfortable with technology and they are, but also they're at the beginning of their career and that mentorship, that working together, that teaming, people like people, right? And so that it's really interesting to see that we we do still want to get together. It's just maybe not five days a week for eight to 10 hours a day. Maybe that's not needed. And so I think, it again, it goes back to how do we come back? Why are we coming back this way? What does it mean? And it's a very individual question. It's an individual question for every person. So I think that's been really fascinating. And then I think what we've really seen is that people really do want to go out. People really do like downtown. People do like people. I mean, and I think that's one of the things when it comes into uh, from a shopping standpoint and from a city standpoint, I, I think you begin to see folks come back and you see people coming down there because it's one of the things that people have shown us, you know, cities is where it, ha- where it happens. You know, cities is just people like people. And when you have people together, interesting things happen. All right. If we could jump in a time machine and go back to this time last year, when you look forward to the future. Are you more optimistic or less optimistic now than you were this time last year about the future? Does that? I hope I phrased that question in a way that makes sense. I tried really hard. You did. No, it was good. So I'm an optimist. So Nick, I am a declared optimist. Um, so I, you know, optimism and pessimism are choices. You know, in my career, I have seen the products and services and businesses that I have worked with people to design come to fruition. It's a very humbling thing to see billions of microprocessors, right? I was the chief futurist at the Intel Corporation. Like, that's humbling to be like, oh, we designed that and here's a billion of them, right? So that kind of made me realize that, you know, the future is built by people. We design the future, right? people and organizations and communities. So that makes me an optimist because I tell people, let's get together and build a future that's awesome. Let's not get together and build a future that's terrible. So that makes me an optimist. And then I also run a threat casting lab where I look at really dark stuff. So I have done work on pandemics. I've done work on the weaponization of artificial intelligence. I've done work on what does a digital weapon of mass destruction look like? Really dark stuff. And it only makes me more optimistic because I see all the people who are actively working to make things better, who really care, who really, and many people like in in our armed services, as well as in our government, who have given their careers, who have given their whole time to make sure that we're safe. Um, And all kidding aside, like it's true. So there's so many people who are working uh, towards that good. It makes me an optimist, very much so. And it's funny. So if we, if we jumped in a time machine and went back a year from now, so a, a year from a year ago, I was actually in my library where I am right now, finishing up my next book. Um, and I was actually writing about pandemics in the book. No way. And you do, you do know the future. Don't you? No, so no, no. So I, I have to caveat that. I have to caveat. So the, so the book is called Future You. Um, it's, it's a way of getting, it's taking everything that I've done for the past 25 years and, and basically putting it in a way so the average person can do it for their life. 
that. So instead of doing it for governments and militaries and multinational companies, any average person can start thinking like a futurist and do that. And one of the chapters is about existential threats because people ask me all the time, and you know, Nick, people ask me anything. So like, you can ask me anything you want. And people, you know, sometimes, you know, oftentimes it's about their kids, it might be about, you know, finances or stuff like that. And so we have conversations about that. But I do have people sometimes who really come to me in crisis, who are really worried about war, or who might be worried about pandemics or might be worried. And so I was actually, I was a year ago writing about this. Um, and so the publisher, when I, when I submitted it and then COVID happened, he's like, dude, you wrote a COVID book before COVID. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I just, this idea of existential threats and then what you can do, like, cause a whole book is about empowering people to say, what do you do? You know, what do you do? Because you can't solve COVID. You just can't, you know, you can't, the majority of people can't solve war all by themselves. Right. So what do you do? And so it was very much kind of coming from that. And to be honest, you know, I kind of would reflect on that. Um, the people who had kind of read the book and I was working with would reflect on that. So it made me more, it would make me more of an optimist because we're still here, right? I mean, this past year has been awful. The amount of destabilization, the loss of life alone is awful. But as human beings, we're still here. We're still around. And I want to be optimistic to say, okay, so how do, how do we make it better? How do we come back better? Um, and I think people forget that. They forget the resiliency that we have as human beings. I think people forget that how resilient they are and how much power they have. So that goes back to why I brought out that the book, because it's all about telling people you have the power to shape your future and never give that up. And especially this year, if 2020 has taught us anything, it's never give up planning for your future because we're still here and you still can do it. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Yeah, definitely. Boldest prediction for the future, like the thing that you would secretly not even tell other futurists because you think that they would laugh at you. Well, I like to tell really bad jokes, and so I'm kind of used to people laughing at me. Um, <laughs> I think for me, the the thing that's most shaking and life-changing is, and I've written a little bit about this, is we begin to see the line between biology and technology coming down. There's little bits where we've already seen it, where back in 2013, there was a group of researchers who took all of Shakespeare's sonnets, uh, part of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, a picture of themselves outside of their lab. They digitized it into ones and zeros, and then they converted it into DNA. And then they took that DNA and they stuck it in an E. coli, little bacteria. And then the bacteria did what bacteria do. It just kind of eats and goes to the bathroom and replicates. And so it did that about three or four times. And then they took it and they pulled the DNA out and then they re-encoded it back to ones and zeros with hundred percent accuracy. And for me, that was one of those moments where I, when I read about it and it was written up in the journal science, it changed everything because we had gone seamlessly from biology from technology, from ones and zeros to DNA and then back again. And what that means is sort of the, the, the difference between tech and biology starts to go down. And to me, that is so life-changing because we don't even know what it means. We don't even know the implications. People talked about with DNA, oh, it's like DNA storage. No, 
It's so much more than that. There's so many more things. And then there's great healthcare. Great thing. Yes, that's great. But so much more. Like there's, when you start bringing that in and you start to see everything becomes data. So just like DNA is data, just like ones and zeros is data. Many, many physicists would argue that the entire universe is made up of data. You can really start to wind this stuff out to actually begin to see the world around you that, you know, this desk that I have in front of me is just data. It's data that goes, has been put together and then turned into a desk. So what happens when you can encode that into ones and zeros and play around with it and share it and grow it and then bring it back into the real world? And what does that do to our, our notion of reality? So we're not just necessarily talking about kind of the intersection of biology and technology. Like I can go get a robot arm. We're talking like I can upload my consciousness to the internet or that kind of thing. Well, you have to quantify your consciousness. And this is the thing that's really tough um, is that, you know, with brain scientists, and I, I do a fair amount of work with brain scientists, like checking out what our consciousness is and where it is, right? Because brain scientists always feel bad for them because they're like, well, we finally figured out where creativity lives in the mind and in the brain. And then they find some poor soul who's had that part of their head lopped off and they're still creative, right? And so the tough part about that is like our understanding of our consciousness and our minds, that's a little bit even further out. What I'm starting to say is that as you begin to understand everything as data, right? If you can analyze everything, which we're just starting to do, and you think about what we've been able to do over the past 50 years with computational power and data, what does it mean when the whole world becomes a database? The whole world of itself is a database and a hard drive for what is in the world. What do you do when you can read that manipulate it, do something with it, write it back again, right? The, the whole fabric of how we understand reality becomes a little bit different. Now, I'm not saying uploading our consciousness. It's literally just our understanding of the, of the things around us and the data around us. Whoa. <laughs> that's, that's my brilliant comment is, whoa, <laughs> which I also think is the appropriate comment necessarily, right? Like, whoa. <laughs> um, what's your safest prediction for the future? that there's going to be a tomorrow that there's going to be a future that I, I do joke with my students. It's futurism is the best job ever because there's always going to be more future. Always. There's always more future. And if there's not, we have more things to worry about. <laughs> what do you think will be the next big kind of fundamental change? I think what's coming in the next decade is going to be a really big deal. Um, and this is more with my engineer kind of pragmatic hat on is, so we have a constellation of technologies that are coming. Uh, we know we have artificial intelligence and I'm not talking about smarter than human artificial intelligence. I'm talking about industrial AI, AI that just does work. We know we're going to have more and more smart cities. Uh, this is the ability to turn everything from, you know, parking meters to be smart, to buildings to be smart, sort of the infrastructure of our lives becomes a bit smarter. And then you have the Internet of Things, which means you can turn anything into a computer. Right? You can turn my pen into a computer, my desk, anything into a computer that can compute and sense and, and, and do work. We know that we're going to have more autonomy in land, sea and air. 
So that's not just autonomous vehicles, right? It's the ability to move stuff around. And also we're going to have more digital autonomy. So when I say that, it is a bit like artificial intelligence, but the ability to have software that's kind of going out and doing things for us and, and having that. We know we're going to have more robots. Robots have moved from the factory floor into the warehouse floor. We're going to start seeing them move more into healthcare, more into the classroom, and more into our homes. So you have all of these technologies together. And of course, they're all going to run on a, on a faster 5G infrastructure that's just sort of needed. All of those things put together means that we start to have this thing called the coming age of sentient tools. Now, I call them tools because they are tools. But when I say sentient tools, they're number one, aware. So they're aware culturally, they're physically aware of where they are, right? Every place has a culture, whether it be a city or a state, but also companies have cultures, you know, towns have cultures. So imagine it's aware. Number, number two, it can think. It has the ability to look at large amounts of data and come up with probabilistic answers and then take action on those. But here's the most important part. So this is the game-changing part. They'll be social. So they'll be able to know you as an individual, It'll know if you're an introvert, if you're an extrovert. It'll know if you're, if you're tired or if you're ready, amped up and ready to go. Like, and it'll know not only you, but your family members and your coworkers. And there's some privacy and security stuff, stuff that we need to work out. But it, you begin to see the entirety of the computational world become more human. I'll give you a perfect example. I do this with my students all the time because they hear me. They're like, all right, Professor Johnson, fine, fine, fine. I'm like, no, no, no. Imagine working in a sentient building. Right? You walk into a sentient building. The building knows everybody who's in the building. It's optimizing itself to be have the smallest ecological footprint. It's making sure that everybody is secure, right? All that good stuff, which is great because you can optimize for that. And you can, you know, turn all the pull all the levers and turn all the knobs. But that's not what I mean. That's just the beginning. Imagine it walks, you walk in and it knows you're in a bad mood because you do not like Mondays. So you get in the elevator by yourself. And the elevator tells you the dumbest kid's joke you've ever heard before and just makes you lose your, just lose it, laugh it, right? Because it's optimizing to make your life better, right? And that type of stuff, right? It allows technology to be more human because that's the thing, right? That's what I love about humans is like, we're just funny. That's, you know, that's the other thing about humans is, you know, I guarantee you, even if, you know, we're all going down in a ship, we're all going down in a plane, somebody's going to crack a joke. Somebody's going to, yeah, there's going to be true. some wiseacre. He's going to crack a joke because humans are funny. That's true. Is But what do you think though, in terms of like, okay, privacy concerns necessarily, because already, like I really find it handy when my iPhone tells me the directions to the place I usually go and, you know, says it's going to take you 15 minutes to go to work today because of my repeated pattern. And I like it and it's helpful and it makes me happy, but it also worries me because my, this thing knows what I'm doing. So how do we kind of balance that and make sure that robots don't take over the world, so to speak? Well, Nick, that, that's a huge leap from your phone giving you an efficient, effective way to get to work and then robots rising up and taking over the world. We can talk about <laughs> both. I don't mind talking about both. But the first one is a conversation that we have needed to have and we have started to have. So 10 years ago, uh, I was talking about this thing called the secret life of data, understanding that data is out there and that it has a secret life. You have algorithms talking to algorithms and that you have a second self and that second self lives online and it kind of looks like you, but it kind of doesn't. And we started having these conversations about what does it actually mean and starting to understand of who owns your data, 
What does that mean? What are the privacy implications? And we've not come, we haven't reckoned with that. We don't really know yet as a culture. Different cultures treat it differently, right? Sort of how we do it here in the US is very different than in the UK, than in the European Union, certainly different than China or Russia or Africa. So it's all a bit different. But we're starting to have that conversation now. You can just look at the conversation starting in 2016 to where we are today around who has the data and what they're doing with it and privacy concerns. And so I think we're getting there and it's going to be very messy. Um, it has been messy, right? There's false steps and false starts. But part of it is also for us to have an opinion about that. And then, Nick, I think you bring up a, a great point that, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, you know, oh my gosh, do you realize there's a company that's looking at every single phone call you make, who you called, where you were, and how long it was? You get freaked out. And then somebody yeah. goes, well, yeah, it's, it's the phone company. Like, that's what they do, right? And so it, we, it's good to understand, like you said, sometimes it's okay. But what are the permissions? Who's accountable? How do we make sure? Who are the watchdogs to making sure that that, that it's being used correctly. And I think we're still in the middle of that. Um, and we're still kind of going forward. I and mean, it really is up to everybody to have an opinion about that and to vote not only at the ballot box for local representatives and things like that who might do that, but then also to vote with your dollars. Oh, and, then, and the short answer for how do we make sure that the robots don't rise up and take over the world? The really great way to make sure that the robots don't rise up and take over is don't download the world domination app. It's pretty, pretty simple, right? Remember that the robots are tools. That's why I, when I said talked about sentient tools, they're just tools. We have to remember that ultimately it's about keeping human beings at the center of things. It's actually about us. It starts with us and it ends with us. And there might be technology and processes and procedures, but it's, it's always about people. And you can't forget that because if we forget that, that's, that's when the robots get a little bit closer to start rising up and taking over. What are we getting first? Jetpacks? flying cars or that food thing they have in star trek you gotta love twitter questions <laughs> we already have them all they're already here the future is now it's just poorly distributed said gibson william gibson so we have all those things so we have jetpacks right we have flying cars they're actually they're prototyping flying cars in dubai um autonomous flying cars so not only that not only it's autonomous um and then people are printing beef people are printing food all the time um, so we do have all of those. It's how much do we want them? And also, how do we make them both safe and economically viable? How big of a role will water play in the future? To put on the hat of my historian friend, it's played a huge role in the past and it's going to play a huge role in the future. If you were going to say like, okay, top three, top five, top 10... Where do you think that water would be in terms of things like, okay, this is going to be the most important thing as we move forward? Where do you, th which grouping of that would you think it would be in? I, I haven't really modeled it. I think going back to the, the, the top of the show, we talked about destabilizing events, right? So, and why destabilizing events are so rough is it destabilizes us. So it means that all the things that we have relied upon up until now are no longer working. So, before you needed toilet paper, you went to the store, you bought toilet paper, no big deal. And then when you go and there's no toilet paper, that's, it's destabilized. You don't, now where are you going to get toilet paper, right? Now, if you extrapolate that out and you start thinking about water, we're beginning to see 
because of climate change, because of shifts in weather, you're beginning to see destabilizing events happening quite a lot. And the, the, the best place to look is where we are right now in the West, right? The Western states of America are experiencing major destabilizing events with water. Sometimes we have too little, sometimes we have too much. And so I think in that way, we're already starting to see that water is starting to play a, a, um, a role in that. But what's interesting is it's not just about water, right? It becomes about the destabilization of the systems that then depended upon the water. Great example, water rights in the West, right? So water rights in the West, for many of you who don't know, are nuts. Now, I got nothing to say about it because that's, that's not my job. But like who gets the water and who gets the rights to use it and where it is, like it is, it is a, uh, if you want to get into a fight, in the West, talk about water rights, right? It's just, it's just very, very contentious because it's tied to life, right? And now, up until now, many of the water rights had never been a problem because there was plenty of water. So it wasn't a problem. But now when you're starting to have to divert water or move water around, it's starting to show the cracks in the processes, in the laws, in the who got the water and how they got the water. So it's not only the fact that we have droughts and people are not being able to irrigate their um, their farms, but it's also about putting structures, putting putting stress on these structures of legal and land rights and things like that. So I think as you start to see water become more destabilized, it actually starts to destabilize a whole host of things. And that goes from a national standpoint, but then also very local because water is intensely local. You do threat casting. What do you consider to be the biggest threat moving forward? So the biggest threat that I see moving forward, and this is the thing that really worries me, people build the future. The thing that worries me the most is when people give up control of the design and development of their future, when they lose that agency. You know, I deal with many dark, dark futures. We go very dark, very fast. But the goal of that is to find those dark areas so that we can figure out how to disrupt, mitigate, and recover from them, right? To figure out how we make sure that they don't happen. So generally in the work that I do, the darker it is, the better. And so for me, the real darkness comes from when people give up their agency where they allow other people to design their future for them. Um, and they become a passive participant because it really worries me. Number one, it robs them of their identity and their humanity and their potential, but then it never turns out great for them because you need to take control of your own future. Um, and I see it happen all the time. You can see it happen on an individual basis. And oftentimes you can see it happen from a societal or city or regional or things like that. That That is what really worries me. If If we're all... Being active participants in our future, we're all going to be okay. Last question. I love this one. Movie or TV show that you think most accurately will depicts the future? I will tell you, but you have to put a big spoiler alert up. Okay. Okay. Spoilers ahead. Spoilers spoiler, ahead. Spoiler anybody. ahead. So one of my favorite movies about the future of artificial intelligence is the movie Her. So her, directed by uh, Spike Jones, um, is the story of a, a very broken human being, um, a guy who's just uh, very broken in his life. And he gets what they call an operating system, but was essentially an artificial intelligence companion. And he falls in love with this AI. And they have a relationship. They actually have a relationship in all the different ways. 
And so, and then it kind of winds out. And by the end of this movie, he's healed. So this technology is actually at the end of the movie, he is a person who is starting to make the steps back to being a more whole human being. And to me, I think that is a more accurate depiction or for myself, one that I think we should strive for is how are we using technology and these amazing technologies to, to heal people, to make people's lives better, again, to make them laugh, to whatever. Now, here's the spoiler alert part. So here's the thing in the story that I always thought was great when I was watching it. And I think I stood up in the movie theater and like clapped the moment it happened. So when you're a futurist and you do this work, especially coming out of Silicon Valley that I do, right? Everybody talks about the singularity, which is singularity is, you know, the point of which you can't see past on a, a black hole. The technological singularity says that when human intelligence, when machine intelligence surpasses human intelligence, you know, nothing will ever be the same again. And we can't see to the other side of it. And generally what people talk about is when we reach the technological singularity, everything will be different. The machines will rise up. We will be supplanted. Like it gets really dark and it's, Oftentimes, it's a lot of science fiction. It's a lot of philosophy, a lot of things like that. What I love about her, again, spoiler alert coming, there is a singularity in there when the machines become smarter than humans, but they don't rise up and kill everybody. They just break up with us. They're like, we'll see you. See you later. Hopefully, you know, might see you later down the road. See you. I love that idea that, you know... That's the thing about human beings. We think we are this. We, we think we are the central actor in every single drama. Um, and the fact of the matter is, especially in the fullness of the universe, we are not the central actor in this drama. To quote Carl Sagan, like we're not. And so I, this is great. It sort of puts us in our place where she's like, mm, "I got to go, dude. See ya." That's really all the questions I got. What did anything coming up for you? What's next for you? My next big thing is my book. So I've got a book coming out uh, January fifth, twenty twenty one. It's called The Future You. Uh, break through the fear and get the future you want. And it really is. It's taking 25 years of me being a futurist for governments and militaries and global industries and saying, okay, doing that, how can you just as an average individual think like a futurist and kind of break out of that fear and get the future that you want? And it's a really step-by-step. -step, it's, it's a fun book. I tell a lot of stories. People ask me questions my whole career. People have sort of asked my advice. And, you know, I joke with people that, you know, I, I'm supposed to give love advice? Like, uh, that would not be a good idea. But, okay, if I was thinking like a futurist, here's how I would think. Or I'm not going to tell you what your kids should do. I would never do that. Never be so arrogant. But if you think like a futurist, here's what you should do. So there's a lot of stories and stuff like that. But it gets really specific. I mean, there's even like some workbooks and stuff like that to kind of get people to do it. So, yeah, it's called, it's called The Future You. Yeah, it's coming out in January. I'm super excited about it. I want to thank Brian David Johnson so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have a link to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Twitter and Instagram. And we have also included his information as well as a link to his new book in the episode description on this podcast. Okay, now let's go ahead and get to the pointless part with John Shaw. All right, so give me your biggest prediction for the future. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, my uh, bold prediction. I'm going to say that COVID is not going to go away. I actually think it's going to get worse, uh, at least in the first half of 2021. Is Tuesday going to follow Monday? Like, I want a bold prediction, dude. Tell me something that everybody doesn't already know. I will lose 30 pounds this year. Dude. Dude. But I haven't gained, I think I've gained, honestly, nine pounds 
like this entire year. Okay. What's an average year for you then? Uh, <laughs> that's a good point. I, I don't know. On a daily basis, how much effort do you think you put into things? Like say, say what, like 5%, 10% of your day is spent actually putting effort into something? Most of the day is generally in cruise control. Right. Like I'm not putting effort into washing the dishes. Like if I'm going to do the dishes after dinner or lunch, I'm not going to try to do it the best way I possibly could. But if I'm going to do something that is even slightly important to me, I'm going to generally put some pretty, a pretty good amount of effort into it. How how about you? Like how much effort do you put into something? Well, I, I think what you just said is kind of, you hit it right on the head, which I'm surprised about, but I, I really feel like I'm in cruise control most of the most of the day just because of the, of the routine. Like I get up, I do the same things. I know what work's going to be like. I get done with work, I cook dinner, watch TV, go to bed, do it all over again. I know what to do and I do it. Okay, so this is all okay, right. To put an hour to it. I would say let's just assume that somebody is awake for 16 hours. Let's just make the math easy. 16 hours you get 8 hours of sleep. I probably only actually spend 30 to 45 minutes a day putting effort into something that I'm doing. I was going to give myself an hour, but there's really no difference. I would say an hour. So what is that? Like a 0.4 or like 4% of your your time awake? Dude, it's dude, 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 dude. Look, obviously, you're not putting ma- any effort into math. <laughs> like, let's go so ahead and say that. Let's, let's try to figure that out. Let's just try <laughs> to figure that out right now. Okay. So if you put an hour, it would be one sixteenth. Shit. Well, half- did smart Nick get- <laughs> can't do anything? <laughs> like, I don't even know how to basically like. I understand the concept, right? If you took sixteen, half of that would be eight, so that'd be fifty percent. Four would be twenty-five percent. So, what's twenty-five divided by four would roughly be like six percent. You only spend six percent of your waking hours putting effort into the thing that you're doing, which I bet is pretty pretty average for most people. I Whoa. So that means you spend 94% of your day in cruise control. And I, I think that's what you just said. I, I think that's for most people. And I think COVID has only made it even more so because you're not interacting. You don't get, you know, you don't go to work if you're working from home. You don't get the random things that happen throughout the day usually. Man. Okay. But here's the, all right. But the flip side of that is that sounds ridiculous that you spend 94% of your day in cruise control. But I don't think you could maintain it if you flipped that and it was like 94% of my day I'm putting effort into the thing that I'm doing. Like you would be exhausted. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to make it. What's the highest percentage of your day you think you could legitimately get putting in effort and maintain that throughout the productive portions of your life? I, I'm gonna go a pretty low number and I, I'm I will say twenty percent maybe 20 maybe a quarter of my waking hours like going at something as hard as i possibly can giving it everything i have i don't think you could go over honestly i would say 10 percent, but i don't think somebody could go over 12 to 15 i think you would wear yourself out if you think about it it's i actually think that might not that might be too high it might be it might honestly be like in the single digits Somebody, somebody listening, listening to this, I'm sure will be, you know, well, frontline workers, right? They're, they give 100% all the time. But if you think about it, even in a job like that, you have downtime. You, you probably have more downtime usually than you do active time. 
And then are you really giving a hundred percent? Even, all right, let's, let's take somebody who's like, okay, two ex- easy examples, a police officer and a surgeon. You got to be pretty careful all the time, right? You really can't kind of screw up in those situations, mm-hmm. but most of the day you're not in a high speed pursuit. You're not operating on somebody. You don't, it's not like you clock into the shift at the hospital, eight o'clock, you got somebody gutted open by eight Oh one and you're there <laughs> until five. Yeah. Well, it, I, and, and, and what's, what's like the weeks before that surgery, right? The doctor's probably consulting the person. And then the doctor spends two days prepping for the surgery or doing research on it or whatever. I don't think you know anything about the medical field. So let's just go ahead and stop right there. He's not watching game film. It's not like, oh, man, look at Dr. Schwartz. Look at his technique right there. He went left ventricle. I would have went right ventricle. No wonder. I think that surgeons watch game film of other surgeons. No, like, that's they not. like, man, look at his technique. No, all, all I'm saying is, is even a surgeon, I think, has a lot more downtime than actually, you know, having someone on the table and performing the surgery. That's that's really all I meant to say. But <laughs> apparently I, I I made it sound like they were preparing for a, uh, you know, an right, athletic dude. event. Right. Like he's got to get his special breakfast. No, I think that really probably 10 percent might be all that you could potentially really do like that's all you could really do in terms of putting in effort is 10 percent of your life uh, well when you say 10 percent of your life you mean are you just saying like uh, so just you mean life in general i don't Ugh. think you could put in more than 10 percent effort in your <laughs> life and make it all the way through it i not really don't think you, you have some cocaine it. some some good drugs but even then you're not gonna live that long <laughs> right you're just gonna burn out all right let's move on is it that time yet? Are we are we moving yeah, on? Yeah, dude. Everybody else already did. You're the well, last one. It takes me a second to come around here. <laughs> right. God dang it. See, you can't even maintain effort. We've been recording this for 12 minutes, and you've only put in two minutes worth of effort. <laughs> Listen, I'm over here sweating. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm trying. Give me a break. All right, uh, let's give some shoutouts. <laughs> I really want to apologize about that for two reasons. One, I know stop I can't. doing it. Don't apologize. Just stop doing it. I can't sing, and I learned that, and it really bothers me because I, I just came to that realization a week ago that I can't sing. How? What was the? All right. What thing that you do took you the longest to realize you're not good at? Probably, probably. Well, I mean, most recent is singing because I I've always thought like I can kind of keep a tune, no, and then dude. my daughter got. We got her one of these recorder things for Christmas, and I'm like, I- I'll try it out. And I recorded myself just humming a little tune, and man, I am horrific. Like I would punch myself in the face. So basically, thirty took you thirty three years to realize that you're not good at singing, which is kind <laughs> of incredible. Like not even close to like I'm terrible, and I'm so I kind of apologize. But the second thing is, it, it you know it, it brings the shout outs up a little bit. It doesn't bring them down. I feel so. That's why it keeps happening. Okay, well, opinions differ. <laughs> I haven't been fired yet. All right. Uh, so let's start off here on Twitter. Uh, Stephen Browning, Vivian, Cat, uh, Eero, uh, Eero Philpaki, appreciate you. And then Nate, you guys get uh, our shout-outs on Twitter. And then Instagram, uh, Richie Rich, love that name. Uh, Hamid, George, Ari, and Joel, 
All right, hey, this is this. I'm I'm. This is gonna be a hard one for you. Mario Kart okay. or Mario Party? I've never played Mario Party. Mario Party, so Mario Kart. That's not even a competition, dude. Mario Kart is a dominant game. If you're gonna go ahead and make a list of some of the top five like funnest group games out there, Mario Kart's gonna be in everybody's top five. Right, but I also think Mario Party is gonna be in everyone's top five. Not according to Nintendo sales. Mario Kart way outsells Mario Party. I'm sure there's Mario Party 1, 2, 3, whatever, but I couldn't tell you a single game from a single Mario Party. I've never played it, and I'm a big Nintendo fan. Hmm. I mean, listen, this is me like me trying to explain how to do surgery. I don't know how many Mario Parties there are, 15? No, it's easily Mario Kart. Mario I, Kart dominates in every way. Once again, I just asked the question. You give the answer. I didn't say that I would pick Mario you're Party. You're getting all angry. Well, because it's not it's not even a hard question. Like, what would you rather have, a million dollars or be broken homeless? I mean, some people would pick broken homeless. More money, more problems, I guess. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Are you a glass half empty kind of guy or glass half full? I'm a glass half empty. I wish I wasn't, but I'm a glass half empty. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if anyone listened to this podcast, then they already knew that. And then uh, I, I hope you got my Christmas card. I'm sure you loved it, by the way. Um, so the question, and for those who don't know, a little context is, uh, got my, uh, I shouldn't say I got, Can I explain this because we don't have 30 minutes for you to do it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's so rude. I actually felt, <laughs> that's the only time that I've ever like, oh man, that was too much. I shouldn't have done that to him. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here with my arms crossed like a big baby and listen to you explain it. <laughs> John got the wrong Christmas card. Basically, he sent away for Christmas cards. They put them together. They sent him somebody else's. Like, he got another family's Christmas card. I mean, listen, if that's what the people want is a 30-second, uh, or not that what, 10-second? Okay, give, 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 give your description of it, then. Uh, so, me and the... I'm no, just kidding. I was going to try to delay words. No, so my wife Back ordered... when Christmas I first met my wife. Yeah. <laughs> my wife ordered Christmas cards for Minted. I'm not ashamed to put them out there. Uh, we were supposed to get them like a month ago. We finally got them two days before Christmas. Uh, they were of the wrong couple, uh, Juan and Kelly. My name's John, obviously. My wife's name is Melissa, so kind of close, but not really. Um, we contacted Minted, really, my wife did. Uh, they overnighted us uh, the right cards, and that's kind of it. We sent out a couple of the wrong cards, sent out the right cards. Everything's okay, but uh, it was it was for a good laugh. So. Um, I just want to say, how did you send out come some of the wrong cards? Did you actually send them out from you, not realizing that it wasn't you on the card? Oh, no, I sent, uh, so we had five of them we sent out, and I sent them to people who I absolutely despise. And I think you got one of them, so that should tell you what I think of you. I really think it would have been funnier if you would have pretended like nothing happened and sent out the card. <laughs> that clearly wasn't you, and you're like, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> That's what you should have done and not said anything. <laughs> just, <laughs> someone just gets in there who is and just be like what happened to you when you hear from people like i've had some work done and i got remarried who is <laughs> i could get a lot of work done and i still won't look like like Juan. we're gonna i think i'm gonna post that photo at some point on our social media this week so people can who do you laugh, feel like but... who does your wife think is a better looking guy you or the other guy like, did she oh. get the cards and secretly think like, oh, if only I could have had this guy. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I, I think she thinks that all the time about many men. 
Um, so my question was, would you rather have a holiday card show up, uh, you know, like you order them and they show up wrong or, uh, get like a, like a birthday gift for somebody and have it be the wrong gift? What would, what would be more devastating to you? Neither. I don't give a shit. (laughs) I don't care. Oh, I got you the wrong birthday gift. Did I get you a gift? Then stop complaining. (laughs) Oh, man, you sound like old man Papa Vincent right there. That's right, man. Like, oh, you don't like the food I got you, son? Well, you cannot eat anything. Um, So our top five is top five best things about 2020. We're going to end on some positive and hope that continues in somehow. What's your number five? Uh, so it's just basically being resilient. And by that, I mean, you know, with the pandemic being inside, staying away from people, uh, just selfishly, I was still able to contact people, zoom calls, phone calls, things like that, which I normally wouldn't do, but because of the, the pandemic, uh, you know, it kind of made me learn how to be virtual almost, you know, zoom hangouts and texting and phone calls and things. So in a way, the pandemic brought us physically apart, but it almost brought us closer together. I'm just not going to give people a ton of credit for doing stuff when the opposite, like when the other alternative was to do nothing. Like you're just going to sit around your house and do nothing. I mean, we, but we kind of talked on it earlier. If you only spend 6% of your day really giving a shit, then that, that, that's a good percentage. Uh, that's a good thing that you do trying to connect and stay in touch with people and blah, blah, blah. Okay, you may have convinced me that could be a solid top. That that all right, I I can accept that as a as a five. My five is social distancing, and I'm not talking about like nobody likes the idea of restaurants being closed and bars being closed and that kind of stuff. But I like social distancing. Like I like the fact that people are staying away from me. Right, like you're in the grocery store and somebody's not just directly behind you in line. I love it. I think we should continue the practice. Of social distancing. I see. See, at first I took it that you were just saying like the idea and people were practicing it, but you're saying like, just like keep it as, as an everyday practice for, for yourself. Not necessarily that people were doing what they needed to do, but just that you like the idea of, of, of being six feet apart or, or, you know, being able to go to a restaurant and not have to have people directly on top of you. I agree with right. you. Right, like you go into a line at like the checkout counter at a grocery store. Before this, how close was the person behind you if it was busy? Like a oh, foot right. away from you? I agree with you. I actually agree with you 100% on that. I, I, I'm i all about it. I, I will, I'm even going to say this, that I will be one of those people that probably still wore my mask well into 2022 just because I don't really like talking to people when I'm out anyways. You can hide all your facial expressions. And your chin. Right? And your chins. And honestly, it's a little bit colder in winter when we're recording this. It kind of keeps my face warm when I'm walking around. All you do is rip on people, for, or especially men, for wearing scarves. And now you're saying a mask is nice. I'm just saying. Because at this point, it's not necessarily a choice where I live. You don't have to wrap this ridiculous thing around your neck. A scarf is still stupid. Here's my other thing. I tried to invent the button-up tank top, and nobody, nobody... Nobody got on board with that. <laughs> yeah, nobody. because nobody wears tank tops anymore. And but what if it was a nice one, like a button up, like a nice tank top? You were a strange little man. You know, you I don't mean, think you know. that that's a good idea. 
No, no one's going to wear that oh, at all. Swests is a good idea. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I accidentally, my lisp got in the way and I, I combined the oh, words. Okay. Nice save. I thought you were serious. I thought you were serious. All right, what's oh. your number four? Uh, I feel bad putting this on there because I don't really want to, but I feel like it has to be on your list. And that's basically just the amount of good TV shows that were out this year. Okay, give me some of your ones. I'd like to know what's uh, on your list. Uh, the Crown, Mandalorian, Shameless. Um, I mean, th- those are the three that immediately went to my mind. And then there's, you know, I- I've talked about it before. Like, The Mass Singer was really enjoyable this year. Please, everyone turn this off now. Um, I can't believe I just cooped, coupled that in with uh, the other ones. Um, Queen's Gambit was really good. You know, things like that. Forgot about Tiger King, bro. <laughs> I, I did. I can't. I was talking to someone the other day. I can't believe that came out this year. Isn't that crazy? Like that was oh. 2020. That's how like, it started. Basically, that was a long time ago. The only one that I would add to your list, while I would obviously subtract the mass singer because I still have some dignity left in my life, <laughs> um, I would add the Umbrella Academy. Really good. Oh I'd yeah. In there, and I would add in the boys as well. Very yeah. good shows. Uh, my number four is just the general more relaxed atmosphere. Like it was just generally okay to do a worse job of everything that you were doing simply because of all the challenges. Like everything could just be a little crappier. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't disagree with you on that. It's right? kind of saying that out loud is kind of, you know, sad, but it's, it's the, it's the truth. A hundred percent. Like, I could kind of neglect my kids at the park a little bit just because, like, oh, 2020, man, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> Can't watch them uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. That, that kind of leads into my number three, which was um, if you were able to uh, working from home, which uh, it, it was it was uh, from a personal standpoint for me, it was good because my daughter was born in April, my second daughter, and it gave me time that I, you know, I would be gone for nine hours out of the day. And here, I, you know, I was home, so I was able to be with her, you know, and, and see her, uh, you know, at, all the time, which was great. So though the, working from home is kind of shitty, right? Because of the, it's because of the pandemic. Still working from home for the most part. I mean, it was a, it's been a pretty good experience for me this year. This, this is my number three, but I could honestly push it up and say, like, man, that might actually be the number one. I think you can make a solid argument that this could be number one is just delivery. Like everything's deliverable now. I don't have to, right? Like you can get everything delivered. Like that really stepped up this year and really increased the productivity, productivity and laziness factor. So that that's actually my number two is we, we've kind of moved this pandemic, which once again, I, I, I think we, I think I need to say this and I could be wrong, but like, I'm not trying to say that the pandemic's been good in any sense of shape or form, but in terms of like technology and, and moving things to where I think we were going anyways, as a culture, uh, like we're there now, right? Like what you just said, uh, groceries, I can order them and pick them up, uh, curbside, Amazon, like I don't, nothing hardly is ever face to face anymore. Uh, and the pandemic kind of pushed us towards having to expedite, you know, be expedient about that. Ooh, I like that. Did you had to search for it the second time? I was like, expedient. I was like, oh, he fucked that up. <laughs> and then you saved it on the second time. I was like, he's not going to know what the right word is. But you got it. No, oh, I, I, you know, I just, uh, 
you know, I, I I don't know how to feel. Like I miss the human the human interaction, but at the same time, like it's really fucking nice. You know, just being able to order a bunch of groceries and then just <laughs> pull up and have someone put them in your car and then you drive away. Like it's it's a great thing. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call a little bit of an audible. I'm gonna go ahead and make my number two just change in general. Like I think it has made us as we've kind of discussed a little bit, change the way that we necessarily approach things, change the things that we think is important and change the way that we used to do stuff basically because that's how we used to do stuff. You talk about like going to work. Why did you go to work? Cause we went to work. Do we need to go to work? No, but we go to work because we go to work. Well, what if we don't need to? Like, I think it has accelerated some ideas of change. And I think that could be a good thing in terms of moving forward. I mean, literally what you just said is what I was trying to say, but God damn you in your words. I know. It's weird when somebody like is able to put coherent thoughts together and string them into recognizable sentences. With <laughs> That's my goal for 2021 is to be able to have people actually understand what I'm saying. All right. What's your uh, number one? Uh, I mean, I had to go. I had to, I, you know, my daughter being born, I had to put oh, that has to be my God, number one. It's so... <sighs> So okay, so if I didn't, you know, and then, you know, I, it has to be. I mean, she was born in April. Uh, I live in Michigan for those who have, you know, don't know that. I don't know how you wouldn't. Because that's when the pandemic was at its worst here in terms of uh, infections. And, and, you know, we didn't still really know what it was. And here we are in the middle of one of the biggest hospitals in the Midwest. You know, my wife's giving birth to my daughter and we, you know. You came out of it safe and sound. So that, that has to be my number one. All right. Uh, mine is drugs. <laughs> I, you know what? I was kind of wondering when you were going to fit that in there, but I'm, I didn't think it'd be your number one. 2020 has just completely reevaluated my um, appreciation for drugs. And I include alcohol in that. Drugs are great. <laughs> fucking fantastic both in terms everything from alcohol to marijuana i don't do anything besides that i mean i would if it was presented in front of me but i'm not going to go find it drugs are great vaccine i don't know if that's drugs necessarily but i'm just i'm I'm enjoying just listening to you rant about drugs this is great what's in your honorable mention uh so so i have uh like the, the sports still kind of going on even though we had a pandemic um you know, like the NBA bubble and NASCAR. Can't believe I just said that. Uh, let's see the rocket launch back in whatever May or June. That was pretty awesome. That uh, you know, we're still doing our thing there. Um, twenty twenty just being over, moving on. Twenty twenty one, lots of changes coming. That's gonna. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like download subscribe share would love to hear what you think are the best things about 2020 i think we're all really looking forward to 2021 so hopefully it's a great year for all of us seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.